fitness product. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 15th of June 2017. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of space science, radio astronomy or optical astronomy. And this week our special guest is Danielle Delat, and she's a rocket scientist and we're crossing over to Tokyo very soon to speak with her. In each episode, we'll have a news roundup. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Hello, Danielle. Hello, Brendan. Today we are speaking with Danielle Delat. Danielle has worked as an aerospace engineer at NASA Goddard and is currently a PhD student at the University of Tokyo in the Graduate School of Engineering Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics. Tell us about where you grew up as a child, please, Danielle. How dark were the skies where you lived? And tell us a little about your school days and how you became interested in science and space and what prompted you to study the sciences. Well, I have to say, that's always a great question for an aerospace engineer. <laughs> and I absolutely loved math and science as a child. So my, my parents had lots of space and astronomy books around the house, and of course, science fiction. And actually, I, I remember sneaking into my parents' bedroom to watch Star Trek Voyager. And I thought I was so clever hiding at the foot of their bed, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure they knew I was there. <laughs> I remember learning about the International Space Station in fifth grade and going to a conference about technology careers. I think at the time I figured I would be an astronomer or a physicist, but I wasn't really sure what else was available. And to be honest, I didn't even hear the word aerospace engineering until I was applying for college. But when I read about it, it every, everything just made sense. Very good. Now, your first science degree was in aerospace engineering with information technology at MIT. What made you choose MIT? Well, shockingly, not every school has an undergraduate degree in aerospace engineering. I was really excited by MIT because it had a phenomenal program, and I absolutely fell in love with the campus. Yep. I love the interdisciplinary hands-on approach, and we had incredible opportunities and professors. Fantastic. And then you moved over to live near the France-Germany border to do your master's in space studies at the International Space University in Strasbourg. What was the focus for your master's? Well, it's actually really hard to define a focus for that program. The, the program is known for the three I's, interdisciplinary, international, and intercultural. Yep. But even so, my goals going in were to learn more about the international space industry, space robotics, space medicine, and space law. 
fantastic. That would have been wonderful. And then you moved back to Washington, D.C. to work as an aerospace engineer at NASA Goddard Space Servicing Capabilities Office for a couple of years. Can you tell us about your favorite projects there? Absolutely. The project I spent the most time with was the ISS Robotic External Leak Locator, a tool for the ISS Canada arm, and it was a collaboration between NASA Goddard and NASA Johnson. Yep. So the instrument actually works best in a vacuum and combines a pressure gauge to detect big leaks and a mass spectrometer to tell you what type of gas is there. Yep. We actually did several experiments on Earth to to determine whether or not we could detect directionality and what type of gas mix is present. So spoiler alert, we can detect directionality. So by design, the ISS actually has several ports that expel gases of different types. So the environment right around the ISS has some expected gas leaks. Yep. And while it's always fun to do these experiments for science, the project actually became more important a few years ago when there was an ammonia leak on the ISS. Ammonia is actually used in the ISS cooling system. This was reported in the news, too, as snow floating past the window. And fortunately, there was no danger to the astronauts, but it's always concerning when something unexpected happens. At the time, the astronauts were able to replace the unit that was leaking, but the program wanted a way to detect the location of the leaks robotically. The IRL tool will let operators on the ground control the robot arm and look for traces of the gas without using valuable crew time. So it's a really great tool for them to have up there. And then another project I worked on was the original ISS robotic arms tool project, or the robotic refueling mission, which, fun fact, was the very last project to be removed from the last shuttle mission, STS-135. So the first RRM mission was the first time ever that tools were made for the Canada arm, and the mission included four tools and several task boards. The purpose of all this was to demonstrate all the technologies for satellite servicing and refueling. That's where the name Satellite Servicing Capabilities Office comes from. So it kind of makes sense. Other cool projects were the Viper mission and Raven. So Viper was another tool that actually had a borescope camera. And Raven was part of a rendezvous docking experiment. The group has actually recently renamed the Satellite Servicing Projects Division, and I would expect some very cool projects to come out in the future. The big project to look out for is Restore-L, which will robotically refuel a satellite, and we've learned a lot from these ISS technology demonstration missions, so it'll be really great to see all of that effort come together. Must be wonderful seeing your work up there at the ISS in real time. It really is. It's so gratifying to know that something that you worked on actually made it to space. That's It's the coolest feeling. Absolutely. Fantastic. And then you were a crew scientist on the Mars Desert Research Station mission number 147. Can you describe this environment and the team you worked with here? And a side question, did you live in Mark Watney's Hab? And what was the big takeaway for you at the end of that mission? Great questions. So the Mars Desert Research Station is actually in the middle of the Utah desert. So the red rock there kind of resembles what Mars might look like in some areas if you squint. But when we the whole place was actually covered in snow. <laughs> yep. We had an incredibly diverse team from all over the world. France, Australia, Canada, Germany, the UK, and the US. And our captain, Roman Charles, was even part of the Mars 500 simulation. So if just in case people haven't heard of that one, that was a, an analog mission where the people from Russia, China, and Europe were all in a simulation for 520 days. Yep. So I'm sure after 520 days in the Russian simulation, the two weeks in the Utah was a much easier experience for our team captain. <laughs> 
And our hab was not as nice as Mark Watney's, but at least we could go outside without suffocating. Okay. And the biggest takeaway, it's really awesome to have opportunities where you can get yourself out of the lab and start imagining the environment for what you're designing for. So we might want to design tools for astronauts in a lab, but it's really good to try to get into the mindset as much as possible. And a lot of these analogs let us test those things and test those ideas. So the biggest takeaway for me was getting just a peek at what the astronaut mentality might be like. Fantastic. And now you've moved over to Tokyo to do your PhD at the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics at the University of Tokyo. How was that transition to life in Japan for you? And are you getting the honorifics and the nomenclature right when talking with the general public, with fellow students and your professors? Well, I have to say it's been an adventure. (laughs) And I've been very fortunate to travel with my education, and it's been really interesting to compare the different education systems in each country. Each one has merits and difficulties, but in some ways you learn just as much from the environment as you actually do in the classroom. Wow, yep. And I do try very hard to address people properly, but I'm sure I still make mistakes. It took a little while to sort out the differences between sensei, sama, san, kun, chan, but I think I mostly have it down now. One cool thing is that most of these can be used for either gender, except for kun and chan, except sometimes they can, so it's a little confusing. But responding to emails is great. If you just throw the name plus san, you're good to go. And if all else fails, the gaijin card or foreigner card is great. And Japanese people have been very forgiving when when they know you're at least trying. Exactly, yes. And how long have you been there? So I've been there for about coming up on two years now. Very good. And what's the timeline on your PhD? So usually the programs are three to four years, which is great. And one of the reasons that they can be a bit shorter than in the U.S. is there aren't as much demands placed on the students as you might have in the U.S. So you don't have to be a TA, for example. And so you you get a chance to really focus just on your research. Very good. Very good. Thanks, Danielle. Now, let's just shoot back a bit and talk about your favorite robotics technology you've been involved with. What was that technology and what was your role? Oh, it has to be the tools for the ISS robot arm. I mean, no question. (laughs) That was was such an amazing project to be part of. And we had such a phenomenal team. And everything that people say about the team being more important than the actual project is true. But in that case, I got to both work on an incredible team and work on incredible hardware. Yes, well, teamwork and collaboration is very important. Now, the idea of there being lone geniuses out there seems to have been a phenomenon of the past. I hope so, because anytime you're working by yourself, you can you can make some progress. But I, I've found that for me, at least, if I'm working with at least one other person, or especially when I'm working on a team, things just go so much better because you never get stuck. You always have someone to talk to and bounce ideas off of. So the project can always keep moving. Fantastic. Thanks, Danielle. Now, would you like to tell us about the 2017 Caltech Space Challenge? What is that? Sure. So Caltech has been running the Caltech Space Challenge for the last several years, and it runs every two years. So this year, two teams of 16 people, so 32 total, were challenged to design a lunar port mission to mine the moon and create propellant for a mission to Mars. So basically, we were tasked with making a moon base that would enable human exploration of Mars or other locations. 
It was amazing because there are not a lot of chances to bring so many really, really passionate people together and work on an interdisciplinary project. We were encouraged to explore all parts of the mission from operations to business to politics. And then, of course, the mission design and how the robots work. It was a really, really incredible opportunity. Fantastic. Now, I've got to admit, I've been doing a bit of a background check, and you have a patent for a wheelchair with a lever drivetrain. Would you like to tell us about the genesis of that idea and where you've taken it? Sure. So that was actually my favorite non-aerospace project that I have ever been a part of. And the first concept for this wheelchair was developed by Dr. Amos Winter, who's now a professor at MIT. But when I met him, he was working on his PhD. He had traveled through East Africa and saw how different the wheelchairs were that were designed locally compared to the ones that were being donated. I'm simplifying greatly here, but when he came back to MIT, he put together a lab called Mobility Lab and a team of undergraduate and graduate students to work on essentially an all-terrain wheelchair. So in my second year working on this project, I got to travel to Tanzania, Uganda, and Kenya to pilot a nonprofit idea and work with local wheelchair workshop technicians. And I know none of this sounds like a space project, and I'm not about to pretend that it is, but what I learned about user-centered design and working with local experts are lessons I used every day when I was working at NASA Goddard. Fantastic. Now, back to the present day in Tokyo, you obviously have a passion for outreach. Can you tell us about the space cafe that you've set up in Tokyo? Absolutely. So ISU Space Cafe is run by International Space University alumni in Washington, D.C. and now in Tokyo. It's inspired by the ideals of ISU, interdisciplinary, international, intercultural. So each month we invite a space professional from any part of the industry, astronomy, engineering, science, business, and ask them to give a talk in a local bar. About six months before Space Cafe started, I went to events, visited bars, and tried to understand the Japanese event scene so that we would have a good start. And I was thrilled to find Good Heavens British Bar because they had everything I was looking for. Great owners, location, food, drinks, and very importantly, a projector. Yep. So we had our seventh event this past Tuesday. And actually, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Tasker, who I know you've had on this podcast, was our very first speaker. But then she stayed on as a co-host. It's been great fun for me because... As an engineer, I don't really spend my days studying exoplanets or working on Venus missions, but I love hearing about these projects and learning from the speakers who are either based in Tokyo at JAXA or one of the space startups like iSpace or Team Hakuto, or people who are just passing through for a conference. It's been a wonderful experience bringing all these people together and starting to develop the space community of expats and Japanese people who speak English. And I think if my following on social media is correct, you had a presentation last night. We did. Tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. So Dr. Stephen Reiner was here. He was talking about the exoplanets and a really unusual transit. So there are actually several ways to detect exoplanets. And one is using what's called the transit method. So basically, when the planet crosses in front of the star, there's a small blip in the amount of light that you can see. But with this very special one, they actually saw something really, really weird. And there were lots of lots of blips where they weren't expecting them. And what they actually think happened is there there is a, a planet, but it's surrounded by rings. And so this whole planet and ring system passed in front of the star. So this is very, very unusual. And if the calculations are correct, this should happen again in about a year. So it was a wonderful presentation to to hear. And it's the best part of Space Cafe, because we get to learn about things that we wouldn't necessarily hear about otherwise. 
Fantastic. Great science always makes great predictions. That's the goal. Now, for our listeners who'd like to find out more about Danielle's fabulous work at the Good Heavens British Bar at Shimakatazawa in Tokyo, you can find the ISU Space Cafe on Facebook. And you can also check out isuspacecafe.org to see the Washington and Tokyo monthly event schedules. And while you're at it, make sure you follow at Danielle Delat on Twitter. Now, outreach. As well as a space cafe, you conduct outreach online by posting a lot of great information about space. Why is outreach important to you? Oh, in a nutshell, we need to get the next generation inspired and excited. For any field to thrive, we need passionate students to join our ranks, and the space field is awesome. I also feel that it's important for kids to see diversity in gender and colors. So as one person, I can only represent a tiny subset, but when I talk to kids, I try to include as much diversity as possible in the photos I choose. And I also really love the women of color in tech stock photos. Those are easy to find on Google. And on a more personal note, sharing my experiences with the younger generation has always been a wonderful source of motivation. Sometimes you can get bogged down in the day-to-day of a job, but watching small eyes get really big as you describe an awesome mission is a really great reminder of why we do what we do. And the way I think about it, if even one student walks away thinking, maybe I could do that too, then my job is done. Fantastic. Now, the microphone is all yours, Danielle, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges we face in science and education, our quest for space. My advice to students is to look outside your home country for opportunities. There are a surprising number of programs all over the world. And another, another thing I hear is people always ask me, how can we get more women in STEAM? My response is always that it starts early. So ask your daughters, your nieces, your young friends about their favorite science experiments or any anything just to encourage them to enter the science field. And finally, have passion for whatever you do. I mean, whether or not it's space or something completely different, having passion and taking advantage of opportunities are the best ways to get involved. Now, Danielle, can we describe you as a rocket scientist? I hope so. Aerospace engineering has a lot of different flavors, but even though I don't work directly on rockets, I think a lot of us like to call ourselves rocket scientists. Fantastic. That's a first for us. We're very proud to have been speaking with you. Thank you very much, Danielle Delat. It's been fabulous speaking with you. Thank you. It's been wonderful to chat. And the best of luck with your PhD. We'll get back in touch with you in 12 months to see how it's all going. Thank you very much. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan, and how are you? Very well, thank you. Great to be speaking with you again, Ian. Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky this week? What's up in the sky this week? This week we've got two giant planets putting on a very nice show. If you're looking to the north in the early evening, you will see Jupiter in the northern sky. Uh, Jupiter crosses the meridian around about 7 o'clock local time. Uh, that's when it's highest and is a very good telescopic object. Jupiter is very obvious in even small telescopes. Even a small telescope, you can pick out the equatorial bands around it, the polar caps and the four Galilean satellites. Awesome. Which we'll put 
which will put on quite a, a nice show over the coming days, although there won't be any of the, some of the spectacular transits we had in uh, previous weeks happening this week. It's a bit more subdued, but you'll see you'll still see some, some nice patterns. I have seen some amateurs have been posting their photographs of the shadows of the moons of Jupiter recently. Yes, even a modest kit, you can get some really nice little images. Although when Damien Peach does it, you know that he's using kit that none of us will ever <laughs> be able to afford unless we win the lottery. Um, <laughs> he's got some amazing images up there, but there's been some Australian amateurs posting images that have been really quite nice. The other giant planet is, of course, Saturn. Saturn is at opposition this week, and it comes to opposition on the 15th. That's when its biggest and brightest is seen from Earth, although because Saturn is also fairly large and in a fairly circular orbit, differences in size uh, over the coming weeks will be minute, yep. and you'll be able to see Saturn beautifully for several weeks to come. Excellent. And Saturn is currently in the heart of our galaxy, near some of the big rifts in the dust lanes in the galaxy not far from the galactic core. It's just moved out of binocular distance from the Trifid and the Lagoon nebulas, yep. although with binoculars you can sweep down from Saturn to the nebulas and, and just hunting around Saturn with a pair of binoculars will look quite nice. If Speaking of amateurs and, and moons, uh, there's been some interesting shots uh, by amateurs recently about of uh, Saturn's moons where they've been able to pick up some of the dimmer moons quite nicely with, by overexposing Saturn. Wow. Titan, yeah, Titan is a really obvious moon. It's, quite, it's relatively bright, but some of the smaller moons are really hard to pick up. But these people have been, it, it, with modest exposures, have been able to pick up some of the dimmer satellites around Saturn, and it's been looking quite nice. So that might be something that, that people uh, with some CCD cameras who might want to look at Saturn might like to try, expose Saturn for a little bit longer and see if you can pick up some of the smaller moons. This is an excellent opportunity with Saturn being at its closest the moons may be a bit easier to access. So that's what's happening in the evening sky tonight. A lot of the action is going to take place in the morning sky, though. Yeah. So the morning sky is being graced by Venus and Mercury. Mercury is beginning to, to head back towards the horizon. So if you want to see Mercury, the best time is about an hour or a little bit after an hour before sunrise. Yep. And you need really at the moment, you'll need to be have a more or less level horizon to pick it up against trees and houses and things. Yep. But if you face east, Venus is really obvious. It's bright. It's brilliant. It's glaring in the sky. And if you trace from Venus, it's, it's Venus is slightly to the northeast. If you trace diagonally down from Venus, the next brightest object towards the horizon will be Mercury. Okay. If, and what's going to happen in the next in the coming week? You're going to see the crescent moon lines up with Venus. So starting on the 22nd, uh, the crescent moon forms a line with Venus and Mercury. Yep. So you have the thin crescent moon just above Venus, and that will look really beautiful on the 21st. And on the 23rd you'll be able to see the moon just above Mercury. Again, this is going to, you'll need a fairly level horizon to be able to see Mercury in this, in this case. And this is the last week we'll have a good view of Mercury before Mercury comes too close to the sun and we won't be able to see it reasonably well. Very good. So Mercury will disappear for how long, Ian? Until mid-July. In mid-July, Mercury returns to the evening skies. And for those of you looking at ahead, 
between mid-July and mid-August will be the best time to see Mercury in the evening skies. It's going to be very high above the horizon, reasonably bright, getting up into darkish skies. So from mid-July to mid-August, we'll have a very good time to watch Mercury in the evening skies. Excellent. Now, do you have a tangent for us this week? Well, the tangent comes from our ring world. Saturn, of course, is the classic ring world, but virtually all of our giant planets have rings around them although they're very faint. Jupiter has a ring system, a very faint ring system. Uranus has a very faint ring system. Now, you might be asking yourself, with all these giant planets that have been discovered around other suns, uh, have we discovered any extrasolar Saturns? (laughs) And the answer is, we've discovered one. And the reason for this is partly to do with orientation. In order to find a ringed world, we'd have to have the rings go in front of a star. Yep. But also remember the rings are relatively transparent and we detect planets in a number of ways. One is by we can see the shifts, the Doppler shifts in light from a sun by the tug of the planet on it. Obviously, this won't pick up rings. You'll never be able to detect these rings by the changes in gravity. Uh, Another way is to look at the dimming of the star's light when a planet goes in front of it. Now, for the ring system of Jupiter, obviously, the ring system of Jupiter is so thin and faint it won't cause any appreciable dimming. But a world like Saturn, if you've got a relatively dim red dwarf star, then you might be able to pick up the dimming of the star's light as a Saturn-like world moves in front of it. And we've got one planet where we've got a dipping in light, of a signal of dipping in light, which is consistent with there being a ringed world going around this star. Is that using Kepler data, Ian? That's using Kepler data. Yep. Now, uh, remember Tabby's star? Yeah. Tabby's star is the star that's been discovered by Kepler, which has very unusual dimming. And so it has irregular dimming, and sometimes the, the dimming is very deep, and people have been puzzling over what this is. Some people have suspected that this might be alien megastructures, although most people think, <laughs> no, it's probably something like a cometary swarm. Yep. But recently there was a paper that's been published that suggests that what this might be is the, the uh, these weird dimming peaks might be due to a giant ringed world and its Trojan asteroids. So as you watch the system orbit its sun, you get these initial weird irregular peaks from the Trojan asteroids going in front of the star. Yep. And then you get the central peak, which is not a clean peak, as the rings go in front of the of the world, then the, 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 the planet itself, and then the rings. And then you have a, a, a group of trailing Trojan asteroids, which then have these irregular peaks. So that's been recently published, and now people are uh, following Tabby's star in order to see if we can detect telltale signatures. One of the problems with this idea is, even though it's, it's really fascinating and quite alluring, is that if the initial irregular dimmings and trailing dimmings are due to Trojan asteroids. Yep. And, and the Trojan asteroids are asteroids that, that uh, orbit ahead and behind of planets in, uh, in uh, gravitational uh, stable spots. So we actually, Earth has the equivalent of a Trojan asteroid. Jupiter has two large groups of Trojan asteroids. So it might be possible that these extrasolar worlds will have Trojan-type asteroids as well. But a big problem with that is you'd expect to see there's a lot of dust around these asteroids. They're a huge group of asteroids. You might expect there's collisions and dust, and we're not really getting the infrared signatures you'd expect from a group of dusty asteroids. 
So even though it's a really alluring model and has lots of positive uh, advantages, we're not seeing the dust signatures around the leading dimming group, which would you'd expect uh, if it was uh, a group of, of asteroids with uh, a lot of dust associating with it. So that's Tabby Star, but there's another star that's been discovered recently, which has a very interesting uh, dimming signature, which suggests that it's, uh, it may be a ringed planet as well. Now, the, the previous ringed world is on a very long orbit. It takes a while before it will get back again for another look at it. This giant planet is orbiting another dwarf star, and it has a relatively short period. And it's suggested that we should see another series of dimmings from it in the very near future, in September of this year. So amateurs have been invited to line up their telescopes on this and start trying to observe it. So if there's anybody out there in Astrophys world who has a halfway decent telescope and some good CCD cameras, you might like to try your hand, if you're not already observing Tabby Star, you might, might, might like to try your hand at looking at the dimming of this star. And I'll put some details up on Astro Brock blog a little bit later, so you'll be able to get the coordinates of the star and start observing if you so desire. All eyes will be on it, Ian, and the good thing is that as our instruments get better, we'll be able to detect fainter and fainter dust signatures. Yeah, we, we will indeed. I mean, this is this is the big exciting thing. We're now in the position where before to find exoplanets uh, or even to observe exoplanets, amateurs needed almost professional telescopes. These days, there's a whole range of exoplanets which are in the range of modest amateur instruments. Again, Tabby Star is bright enough that a good amateur telescope, not one that is hugely expensive, but a halfway decent amateur telescope with a CCD photometry system can follow Tabby Star and contribute to our understanding of extrasolar systems. So the race is on. And that reminds me, Ian, you were talking about ring worlds before. It just reminded me of a great Larry Niven novel that I read a very long time ago called Ring World, which is just excellent. There's a series of three of them. There's Ringworld, Ringworld Engineers, and the third one, which was so abysmal, I can't even bother to remember the name. But Ringworld's really interesting. We're talking about Tabby Star in terms of being a Dyson Sphere. Now, the idea of a Dyson Sphere is that in order to maximally capture all the energy from a star, an intelligent civilization would build a shell around the star to capture all the energy. But there are technical details about this, which can make uh, making a stable spherical object around around a star difficult to create. So Larry Niven came up with the idea of making a much simpler system, which was just a, a ring around the sun. So yep. you'd use less, much less material, but and you wouldn't capture as much sunlight for energy. But you'd have this enormous surface area. So a ring world that was out at the distance of Earth from its sun would have an enormous surface area. So it'd be like having multiple planets all available for, for, for colonisation all on one surface. And you could, for example, by appropriate manipulation of, the, of your sun, turn it into a starship. So you could have these giant space-faring ring worlds. Of course, there's a number of, of technical issues again with this and Ringworld Engineers, the sequel to Ringworld, comes from the, the discovery that the Ringworld itself would be slightly unstable so you'd need to have fusion engines in order to stabilise the ring. 
And the initial story is the discovery of the Bing world and its exploration. And the second story is about how they try and stabilise the Ring world against collapse. So that's all. In terms of engineering, it's an amazing concept. If you think about a, a giant artificial ring around the world, Dyson spheres are mind-boggling. But you could imagine that someone actually building a ring world, although there's a number of technical issues about making something that's strong enough that will not fall apart. Other science fiction stories have used a cut-down version of the ring worlds where they've made much smaller ring structures with a artificial sun in the centre, which gets around a lot of the issues with making a giant ring around the orbit of Earth. But that's a, it's a really brilliant idea. It's a really brilliant idea. And it's that the vision of ring world has engaged many people. And you may not necessarily be aware of it, but Terry Pratchett's first science fiction story, the one that started on the path of Discworld, was a parody of Ringworld. Yep. His first science fiction story was about a Discworld, and then he modified that concept to become the Discworld series of fantasy and fantasy novels, which everybody uh, loved so much. So that was a, an interesting connection between Larry Niven and uh, an amazing science fiction writer, and, uh, Terry Pratchett, one of, probably the most, one of the most exemplary fantasy writers of modern times, both of which who were inspired by the stars. Fantastic, Ian. So that's some recommendations for listeners to go and track down Larry Niven's Ringworld series and also Terry Pratchett's Discworld. For those of us who are science fiction aficionados, the idea of Terry Pratchett's device for exploring the turtle with a primitive spacecraft is truly amazing. And Larry Nivens produced a number of different stories, possibly in terms of the theme of this podcast, Astrophys, where we look at astrophysics. You may wish to look at a short story called There is a Tide, which deals with the issues of unexpected hazards of travelling around a neutron star. Awesome. And it's turtles all the way down, Ian. It's turtles all the way down. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Ian. It's been great speaking with you. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I'm up in Queensland this week, so I'm looking at skies that uh, I haven't been familiar with since I left my home something like 30 years ago. And I've been seeing, in, in between the rainstorms, we've been seeing some beautiful skies here. And from outside my uh, bedroom window, I can see Saturn rising. And if I uh, wander outside and brave the dogs next door, Jupiter is directly above uh, the old hills hoist in our backyard. So that's a really nice thing to see, although I, I, I'm dreading getting up at ungodly hours in order to see Venus this week, but I'll, maybe I'll just sleep in. Fantastic, Ian, and we'll also recommend that listeners go and follow Ian F. Musgrave on Twitter and also just go to Google and put in Astroblogger to see Ian's fantastic blog. Thank you very much, Ian. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Okay, well, thank you very much for uh, having me on again, and clear skies. Thanks, Ian. Next up, the Astrophys News. Wow. And here's today's news. Yes, wow. An important piece of astronomical folklore has bubbled up to the surface again, and it's an object lesson in how science works. Here's the story that's been going around. Alien wow signal could be explained after almost 40 years. A former analyst with the US Department of Defense 
is on the trail of an astronomical cold case, an unexplained signal that some believe could have come from extraterrestrials. Way back in 1977, astronomer Jerry Eamon was using the Ohio State University's Big Ear radio telescope to sweep the sky for possible signals from extraterrestrial civilizations. He found something. While pointing towards a grouping of stars called Chi Sagittarii on 15th of August, he received a powerful blast of radio waves that lasted for 72 seconds. He circled it on the readout and wrote, Wow! Analysis of a signal showed that it displayed all the hallmarks of coming from interstellar space, and it became something of a core celebre for those involved in SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. The trouble is that despite numerous attempts, the signal has never been observed again and so remains unexplained until now, perhaps, thanks to the work of Professor Antonio Paris of St. Petersburg College in Florida. He didn't find aliens, but he did find two suspicious-looking comets, known as 266P Christiansen and 335P Gibbs, they have never been investigated before because they were only discovered in 2006 and 2008, respectively. Paris found that they were both in the vicinity of Chi Sagittarii on the day that the WOW signal was detected. So this could be significant because comets are surrounded by clouds of hydrogen gas that are millions of kilometres in diameter. The WOW signal itself was detected by Eamon at 1420 megahertz, which is a radio frequency that hydrogen naturally emits. He published his idea in a journal. But before the case could be closed, Paris must test his hypothesis, and for this he needed public support. He planned to observe the comets to look for the recurrence of that mysterious signal. So he launched a crowdfunding campaign to raise the $13,000 he needed to buy a radio telescope to make the observation. So that's the Guardian story and the gist of the other stories doing arounds on the internet at the moment. Now step in some scientists. Astronomers have been somewhat sceptical with many questions raised. You might remember Chris Lintot, who featured in that fabulous TV special on ABC TV with Professor Brian Cox and Julia Zamiro earlier this year. Chris has posed the following questions. The beam size of a telescope was 1.2 degrees, which in drift scan mode means objects should take about five minutes to cross the field. Your detections are shorter. Why? How was RFI, radio frequency interference, accounted for? Now this might sound pedantic, but this is insanely important in radio astronomy, where most signals we ever search for are a tiny fraction of the man-made ones, which can be millions of times brighter than an astronomical signal. A cell phone on the moon, for example, would be one of the brighter radio astronomy sources in the sky, to give you an idea. And then there's some other questions about the observations. Now there's also some questions from Chris about the comet. The comet you observed is inactive and far from the sun. Searches for 21 centimetre emission have failed to find anything in the brightest active comets. Questions about the experiment. You wanted to observe the comet while it was in the same patch of sky as the wow signal. Why? The comet doesn't care where in the sky it is. 
Surely observing comets at the same distance from the sun would make more sense. Second question about the experiment. Even if the signal is real, it is different from the wow signal, fainter, with different bandwidth and duration. I therefore struggle to understand how observing this, even if real, tells you anything about the wow signal itself. Questions about the paper. There aren't any frequencies shown in the plots. What are these frequencies? Secondly, figure four seems to show a drift scan, but are labelled blue shifted and red shifted. What are these labels? Can you explain what they mean? Thirdly, the journal is an odd place to publish. I've looked and it doesn't appear to be available online. Did you consider publishing in one of the standard astronomy journals where peer review would be carried out by astronomers? What made you choose this particular journal? So that's how science works. You publish, other scientists look at it, and, and if possible, they will reproduce your results. One paper does not change our view of the universe. See you in two weeks. Bye now. Radio Wave.